You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. So this is the second in our multi-part series this week on the war on independent contractors. And as you probably know, earlier this month, about a week and a half ago, the U.S. Department of Labor issued its long-awaited final rule on what constitutes independent contractors versus employees. And that rule is going to take effect on March 11th of this year. As expected... The final rule contains a six-part test that will make it much more difficult for freelancers or gig workers or independent contractors to earn a living. Well, within days of the new rule being issued, there were several lawsuits that were filed. The first lawsuit was filed by a friend of ours, Kim Cavan, and three other freelancers who are represented by the Pacific Legal Foundation. Now, Some of you may have never heard of the Pacific Legal Foundation, and as always, I'll include links under the audio portion of this episode, but I found the description of what they do on their website to be rather fitting for this topic. Their website states the Pacific Legal Foundation is a national public interest law firm that defends Americans from government overreach and abuse, which is how a lot of independent contractors view the DOL's new rule as government overreach and abuse. So joining us today to talk about the lawsuit and the war on independent contractors overall is returning guest Kim Cavan and her attorney, Wilson Freeman, from the Pacific Legal Foundation. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Kim Cavan and Wilson Freeman, thank you for joining Labor Relations Radio. And Kim, you're a frequent guest on Labor Relations Radio. So it's, it's good nice to see to you see again. you again. I brought my lawyer today, Peter, just in case you get out of hand. That's right. Well, you guys are, are making some press out there, quite a bit of it, as a matter of fact. So I thought doing be- our best. We appreciate you covering the independent contractor issue because it affects so many tens of millions of Americans and what you're doing is really important. So thank you. So to that end, um, and I was mentioning before I hit the record button, I have these conversations with people and I try to explain it and nobody seems to get it until you really kind of go into the detail. So, Kim, as you know, over the weekend, I was trying to come up with a kind of top 10 or top five facts about the war on independent contractors. And do you mind if I go through that really quick? Please do. So, number one, there's over 60 million, and the numbers are debatable, of Americans who participate in the gig economy as independent contractors. They're either full-time or part-time with, quote, gigs. Right. Yeah. And by some estimates now, uh, more than 72 million. It just depends on whose numbers you want to believe. Right. And around half of them are women. Yep. In every study we've seen recently. Yeah. So many of them value the independent contracting due to its flexibility to fit work around their lives, not the other way around. And not only that, but beyond flexibility, health. Um, There's been uh, big studies like um, it was... uh, reported that our mental health and our physical health is often better. UCLA Health did a study showed that women who choose self-employment 
43% lower risk of high blood pressure, 34% lower risk of reporting obesity, 30% lower risk of reporting diabetes. And these are not small numbers. In part, I would suspect that's because there's less stress on their lives in having to manage the rest of their lives around work, right? Absolutely. You, you, you get the, the management boot off your neck. You can actually go take a walk out in the fresh air when the sun is shining in the afternoon. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing. I do it every day. Um, so number three, independent contractors, and I think this is the main key, are not employees. And number four, as independent contractors are not employees, they cannot be unionized and as a result don't pay union dues. That's all accurate, yes. Number five, as non-employees are not unionized, unions see independent contractors as competition. In other words, you may be taking work away from union workers. I think in their minds, that might be true. In our minds, we're simply trying to hang out a shingle and be our own boss, which has been legal in this country since the day it was founded. Right. And number six, although unions represent 10% of the workforce, that includes government workers, only 6% of the private sector is unionized, and unions are one of the Democratic Party's main constituencies. And Also reason- true. And what that... What that- translates into is when we go into meetings behind closed doors with Democrats to talk about this, they tell us point blank that this freelance busting type of regulation, whether it's through laws, whether rulemaking, whatever it is, this is the number one national priority of the AFL-CIO. They say it to us just like that. It is not a question that it is the unions doing this. Right. So number seven, excuse me, as a result of that, And on behalf of the unions, a lot of Democrats are pushing to eliminate independent contractors at the state and federal level. 100% of the legislation and regulations have been sponsored by Democrats. Yes. So narrowing the definition, this is number eight, of independent contractors causes hiring entities, i.e. companies, to stop using independent contractors. We have seen this anecdotally for years, and just this week, the Mercatus Center released actual economic research on this, and what they found was not only was there no evidence of this kind of freelance busting increasing traditional employment, full or part-time, didn't happen, what they did find was that this kind of freelance busting consistently reduced self-employment, and that was especially true um, it also uh, reduced all employment. So they, the numbers they found were that this kind of freelance busting out in California reduced the level of overall employment by 4.4%, and among self-employed workers, that reduction was 10%. So significant, statistically significant, which is what we've been saying all along. When you, when you misclassify legitimate independent contractors, you're not protecting us. You're hurting us. You're threatening and, and harming our careers. Right. And to the Mercatus Center study, to date, there's no evidence that indicates mass hiring of former independent contractors to full or part-time status, right? No, and given the tenor of the press on this issue, if any such evidence existed, we would be seeing it published everywhere. It's just not happening. And number 10, and and Will, maybe you can help clarify this. I'm sorry. (laughs) Sorry about that. Um, Do you prefer Wilson or... Or will Wilson is fine. Okay, that's fine. Wilson, I, I apologize. No worries. 
Unlike California's AB5 test, under the DOL six-part rule, which we're going to get into the lawsuit in a minute, there's no exempted professions and or industries. I've been asking this question for a while. Is that accurate? Well, Peter, I think there's a little bit of background that's necessary to understand the context of this. That is accurate. There are no um, there are no exceptions to the Fair Labor Standards Act. Uh, there are obviously employees who might be exempt from certain provisions of the Fair Labor Standards Act, but the law that the Department of Labor is applying in its six-part test is this enormously impactful federal law called the Fair Labor Standards Act, which applies to every employee in the country uh, without exception. Right. So what I've been trying to figure out and have been asking attorneys and friends, friends who are attorneys, is basically AB5 is a silo out in California. They enacted a bunch of exemptions, and they also have Prop 22. And then you've got this other silo, which is the DOL, and the six-part test is coming out. Similar to the ABC test, which is AB5, there's that Part B in the ABC test, and I think, Kim, you probably know this, number four or five, where it it involves the hiring entity mm-hmm. in the six-part test, right? So right. One of the still, mm-hmm. Yeah, you can still have all of your exemptions in AB5, but, oh, guess what? That doesn't fit the criteria under the DOL. Well, we need to understand that there's two different laws, right? right? Actually, there's a number of different laws that depend, that whose application depends on whether or not the person in question is an employee or not. So tax law, for example, of course, depends on whether you're an employee or not for how you're taxed. Uh, Some Social Security laws depend on whether you're an employee or not. And then under state law, you know, in state minimum wage and overtime law, uh, you know, is a separate entity from the federal question. Under federal law, it in terms of when you're regulated by minimum wage and overtime law, then what we're talking about is the Fair Labor Standards Act. But these laws overlap. And if you're an employee in California uh, or a worker in California, an independent contractor in California, and you're wondering what the legal obligations are that apply to you and apply to the company that you work for, you have to look at a lot of different laws. You do have to look at the California state law, and for that purpose, you're going to be looking at AB5 and the ABC test. But you're also still governed by the Fair Labor Standards Act, so you do have to look at the Department of Labor's new rule. So you might be an independent contractor, um, you know, under the Department of Labor's standards, but not under AB5 and vice versa. The standards don't look to each other in any way. Uh, they are completely operate independently. Right. And could, and could so I that add to goes, that, Peter? Like, sure. What you got to understand, though, is instead of thinking of them as silos, it is the same people pushing all of this. This whole push to reclassify independent contractors started in California. They tried to bring it to New Jersey. That's where Fight for Freelancers started. We stopped it in New Jersey. Then they tried to do it in Congress. We helped to stop it in Congress. Now they're attempting it through this rulemaking change. So we are super lucky to have guys as smart as Wilson Freeman from Pacific Legal banging this stuff out in court and arguing all the nitty-gritty. But I think to the layman, to the average person listening— these are just people who don't want independent contractors to be able to earn a living anymore, and they're trying to figure out how to achieve that goal by any means necessary. That's how Absolutely it is. right. I mean, I think that's right. When I say these sections operate independently, uh, that means that 
you know, if you are trying to crack down on independent contractors, you push on all fronts at once. And uh, the Fair Labor Standards Act is is what this federal rule is about. That's a very important front, even though AB5 still exists. And there's going to be a lot of people who are uh, who can't be independent contractors because of AB5. Uh, or maybe they fit into one of the exemptions for AB5. I mean, if you are if you fit into an exemption under AB5, you're still going to be governed by the Fair Labor Standards Act, which has no exceptions, as you mentioned a moment ago. So you do have to be paying attention to this rule and uh, thinking about how it's going to affect your clients as an independent contractor uh, and how it's going to affect your ability to to earn a living and your, your ability to do business well, independently. That, that kind of goes to my point because in I use those different silos purposely because in either case, you're going to have a chilling effect for those exempted categories out in California, right? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that the exempted categories, uh, they're they're kind of a series of ad hoc exemptions. You know, we objected to those at the Pacific Legal Foundation, uh, not because we objected to exempting people from maybe five, but just because it showed the irrationality and the uh, lack of thought behind AB five that they had to sort of carve out all of these, uh, all of these types of jobs post hoc, but ultimately, this is a way to kind of sweep those jobs into a more restrictive standard, in my view, because ultimately the Department of Labor's standard under the Department of Labor's new rule, while not as restrictive as AB five, you mentioned the fourth factor, the integral factor a moment ago. You know, under AB five, that's a that's a yes no test. If you're if you're uh, integral to the employee's business under the B factor of the ABC test, then you are full stop an employee. Whereas the Department of Labor insists in their rule that it's merely one factor of several, and you can't uh, tell ahead of time how any individual independent contracting relationship is going to be judged. So that's. You know, that that's the there are significant differences between the two tests, but I still view the Department of Labor's test as as an effort to restrict the ability of individuals to work as independent contractors. So Wilson, I know your time is limited, and that kind of comes to the lawsuit that you filed on behalf of Fight for Freelancers. Can you get into that a little bit? I just sure. Like clarification, you. though, he filed it on behalf of the four leaders of Fight for Freelancers. Uh, the four individuals are the plaintiffs, just so we're clear on the public record. Well, okay. yeah, that's right. I mean, our, our clients are freelance writers, and the freelance writers include Kim as well as four of, or three of her uh, colleagues or friends who are also co-founders of this sort of informal group known as the Fight for Freelancers. Our challenge is to the Department of Labor's new rule, which I mentioned a moment ago, uh, which regulates the scope of the Fair Labor Standards Act and who is an employee under that act. I mentioned a moment ago uh, that the Fair Labor Standards Act, the FLSA, I'll call it, uh, is the law which determines who's an employee for purposes of minimum wage and overtime. These are very important rules because if you have somebody working for you and you think they're an independent contractor and you are not paying them the minimum wage or you're not paying them overtime or you're not tracking their hours, uh, you could end up liable under the FLSA to the tune of of big-time damages and potentially even criminal penalties uh, been an enforcement action brought by the Department of Labor. So this is a very important law, and it's very important for 
businesses who use independent contractors to understand whether or not their independent con- the independent contractors that they use are will be judged independent under the Fair Labor Standards Act. Unfortunately, what the Department of Labor has done with its new rule is taken away the ability of employers to make that determination with any amount of certainty. The Department of Labor's new rule adopts a very complex, we call it nebulous, I would call it a nebulous six, maybe seven factor test with no guidance given to uh, anybody as to how those factors are to be weighed or what facts are important under those facts or factors. Just this idea that Almost anything can be significant to determining whether an independent contractor is an employee. Labels don't matter, right? So what's important about this test is it doesn't matter whether or not you think the independent contractors you're working with are independent or whether they think they're independent. If you call them independent contractors and you give them a 1099, uh, that is just a completely irrelevant fact under the Department of Labor's judgment. What matters are these six and or seven factors, very vaguely dis- defined, very uh, loosely sort of stated. And these factors can encompass anything from the way that the independent contractor does business, uh, you know, the tools that they use, the sort of, uh, you know, their interactions with the with their customers, how frequently they work for the same customer, how important the work they do is to their customer. So anything under the sun can be important to this determination. The Department of Labor doesn't tell you how those facts are going to be weighed in the final analysis, but they do tell you that you better get it right. Because at the end of the day, what we're talking about, as I mentioned, is potential criminal and civil liability to companies that use independent contractors. So the ultimate takeaway we have is, is because the Department of Labor has withdrawn a much more concrete and firm standard for determining who's an independent contractor, that concrete and firm standard was put into place at the trailing days of the Trump administration, just a, a rule that was put out in early 2021, which made it clear or made it more clear who's an independent contractor. The withdrawing of that standard is a part of this rule. Uh, so the Department of Labor's withdrawing of that standard really leaves companies, businesses that use independent contractors and independent contractors twisting in the wind. They don't know whether they will be able to continue to do the business the way they've done it all this time. This is a big problem for my clients, uh, as Kim, as I'm sure, told you many times. Freelance writers, their clients, they only want to work with them if they know that they're going to be independent, con- that they're working with independent contractors. And you mentioned chilling a moment ago. It's extremely chilling for businesses to be put in a situation where the Department of Labor says, we're going to tighten the standard for who's an independent contractor. We're not going to tell you exactly how it works, but just be aware that if you use independent contractors, you're taking your life into your hands. That's essentially what the Department of Labor has done here. Uh, we find that to be extremely concerning. Our lawsuit challenges the Department of Labor's rule on three main grounds. Uh, the first ground is that the rule is, well, we say it's what's called arbitrary and capricious. Basically, when an agency does something, they have to act rationally. Here, the department has withdrawn uh, a previous rule, and they've done it in a way that they haven't really explained or justified their decision. So we think that that creates a big problem uh, and potentially renders the rule invalid. 
We've also challenged the rule because it's 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 vague. And as a statutory matter, you know, the department's interpretation has to be consistent with the Fair Labor Standards Act. The Fair Labor Standards Act isn't vague. The department's rule can't be vague. And then the third challenge that we have is that that's unconstitutional. It's unconstitutional because individuals and businesses need to be able to know the rules when they're entering into contracts. They need to know what the surrounding law is. And, uh, you know, that's a constitutional right. You can't be subject to criminal penalties if a person of ordinary intelligence can't have known what the rules are ahead of time. And uh, here we think that the Department of Labor's rule is so vague, so nebulous, that it creates a constitutional issue in that respect. So I'm sorry, that was long. No, that's okay. It's a complicated rule. It's, uh, as I said, it's six, maybe seven factors. They're all stated at great length. The rule is 339 pages long, so we could we could go into the ins and outs of it as much as you want. But let me let me ask a couple of clarifying questions. The first of which I think I know the answer to, but this is filed on behalf of freelance writers, but mm-hmm. as and if you win, that if it'll apply to all independent contractors, right? Well, if we win, the remedy that we're seeking is for the rule to be set aside. So the result of that would be that we would return to the standard that was implemented in early 2021 in the later days of the Trump administration, which we think is much clearer, provides much more guidance to freelance writers. So, yes, it would apply. We believe that should apply nationwide. So, actually, I've got another question on top of this one, but um, so, <laughs> so that's the, why I brought a smart lawyer with me, Peter. Well, that's okay. I I wanted to ask just basic. Um, so, in the ABC test, and Kim, we've talked about this before. It's a you know part A or part B or part mm-hmm. C. Any one would put you into the category of employee versus independent contractor. Is the six part rule or seven part rule? This is, is a very that, important point. Yeah, this is very is, important. Is it and or is it either it's one? Neither. <laughs> it's neither. Right? Right. It's neither. So the Department of Labor's new test, as stated in their final rule, is here are six factors. They are control, opportunity for profit, uh, you know, based on managerial skill, permanent degree of permanence. A bunch of, you know, just a bunch of factors. There's a seventh factor as well, which is anything else we forgot to mention. So the Department of Labor has these seven factors and or six factors, however you want to call it. And what they say is that it's a totality of the circumstances test. So it's a balancing test. So what what the way that we're going to do this when we're confronted with an independent contracting relationship is we're going to look at all of these different factors and then we're going to kind of balance them in some unspecified way, and then we'll determine who's an independent contractor based on how we balance them. But the problem with that is they don't give anybody any guidance. So you mentioned a moment ago the ABC test. It's an it's an and test. You have to meet all three of these. Or if you meet any one of these, rather, you're an employee. Under this test, it, it, you just don't know. So in some ways, the ABC test, if you're a business operating in California, in some ways, the ABC test provides you at least with certainty. You know that you can't hire an independent contractor. And you know that if you try to get away with, you know, having an independent contractor, you know, the test is very clear and you'll be subject to a potential enforcement action. But here, you don't really know. If you hire a freelance writer or a freelance trucker or whatever freelancer you happen to work with, 
you might say to yourself, well, looking at this balancing test, maybe I can get away with this. I don't really know. The problem with that, and this is the problem with all vague laws, is that it accrues all this power in the hands of the Department of Labor. The Department of Labor now is in a position, or will be in a position when this rule is in effect, of being able to say to businesses they don't like, or arrangements they don't like, or, or people who do things that, that are politically unpopular at the moment, well, we have this balancing test, and hey, guess what? I'm sorry. The way that we've balanced it in your situation is uh, just they, that those are those are all independent contractors that you've been – these are all employees, and you've been calling them independent contractors. Sorry. You know, we just, we just balance the facts differently in this case than we did in this case. And when you accrue that kind of arbitrary power in the hands of an agency, it's it, – you know, it, it's simply not – not fair, it's not constitutional, uh, and it doesn't allow people to plan their affairs because they don't they never know when the sort of Damocles could fall on them. That's why does we that, brought this up. Does that not set up future litigation? If you have a, a DOL ruling in one region of the country saying, yeah, that's an independent contractor, and the same set of circumstances in another part of the country, the DOL says, no, that's not an independent contractor, that's an employee. Doesn't that set up automatic litigation? And well, then I mean, is that not a, isn't that an equal um, equal or non-equal enforcement of the law under the Constitution? One of the main beneficiaries of a rule like this is going to be trial. I mean, the Fair Labor Standard Act, Fair Labor Standards Act is often frequently enforced by post hoc lawsuits brought against former businesses. So if you are a dissatisfied former independent contractor, you know, and you talk to a labor lawyer and he says, you should have been an employee uh, and you should have been paid all this overtime. You go back and you sue your former employer. And that's something that happens all the time. And under the Department of Labor's standard, those lawsuits become much easier to bring because it's much right. more plausible to put to, for a trial, for a clever trial lawyer to put together a case that will you know, stand up in court. And that's just one of the, the one of the benefits that the Department of Labor sees to its rule, I think, uh, is that it, it, it will create, I think, inconsistent determinations. Absolutely. But that's an inevitable consequence of, uh, yeah, a nationwide incoherent balancing test. We're right back at the chilling effect, right? Wilson. Definitely. Again, sort of Damocles here, right? If you work with independent contractors, and I think people still, to be clear, unlike after AD5, where these arrangements became illegal, I think some businesses will still take the chance of working with independent contractors under the Department of Labor's rule. But they're taking their lives into their hands, and it creates a situation where the Department of Labor will have arbitrary enforcement power. And that's that doesn't comport with my understanding of the rule of law. Well, it, you know, I was trying to come up with an analogy in explaining this. And, and if I'm a restaurateur, I own a couple of restaurants, and I've got a kitchen, kitchen staff, they're all employees, but I don't have a, a pastry maker, and I want to have somebody make desserts, and I hire somebody who's an independent contractor to make all the desserts, I may have a problem with that, right? Definitely. I, I mean, look, you depending on... Absolutely. I mean, under the balancing test that the Department of Labor puts into place in this rule, 
the only way I could tell you whether that pastry chef is an employee or an independent contractor would be to file a lawsuit and ask a judge or, you know, to get a guidance, to get a, 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 an advisory opinion from the Department of Labor itself, because there's simply no other way. I mean, we could talk about the factors that would apply in such a situation all day. I could ask you, okay, well, how much control does the does the the baker have over the menu? How much? How are you paying the baker? Uh, you know, are you paying her per pastry? Uh, you know, or, or is it is it a an hourly wage? I mean, how permanent is your relationship with the baker? How important are fancy pastries to your particular restaurant business? I mean, we have the Department of Labor's 339-page rule has literally thousands, I would argue, maybe maybe just hundreds, but, but lots of different hypothetical facts that could be relevant to a determination as to whether somebody is an employer. And there's just no way to talk about a hypothetical like that. As the Department of Labor says repeatedly in its rule, there's no way that they can talk about a hypothetical like that uh, and give a, you know, and give a judgment one way or the other as to whether that person's an employee. So ultimately, you know, it it creates this sort of nebulous, unfair standard. Wilson, I know you've got to jump as I'm looking at the clock and I think you are too. Let me ask you one final question from the legal perspective. So this was filed, I believe in Georgia. Where does yeah, it we go? Yeah, we filed the case in Georgia. So the way this works is this fi- case was filed in a federal trial court in Georgia. Uh, we will fight the case there. We're waiting. At this point, the lawsuit, we're waiting on the federal government to respond. So the federal government will, at some point, presumably either try to dismiss our case or file an answer to our complaint. Then we will sort of have out the, the litigation back and forth. After that's complete, we will then proceed to the uh, proceed to the potentially the 11th Circuit, which is a, uh, a federal appellate court, and then after that, uh, you know, after an appeal to the federal court, we would go. We would hypothetically be able to go to the Supreme Court potentially. Okay, so we're talking months and and perhaps this is going longer. to be a line. This is, I think, I mean, I don't know for sure. Uh, I hope that we're able to litigate the case very quickly, but so much depends upon the Department of uh, the Department of Justice, who are the attorneys for the Department of Labor, and uh, and how quickly they're able to move. But you know, litigation moves at the pace that it moves at, uh, and hopefully, we're able to get a quick resolution. I just can't I can't say one way or the other what's going to happen. Okay. Well, thank you, sir, for coming on to Labor Relations Radio. I know you have to go, and and Kim, you can stay on, right? I promise you, not to say anything about the case, Wilson. I promise <laughs> to only talk about the issue. No, you're good, Kim. You, uh, you, you're good. Thank you very much, Peter, for having me on. And, uh, you know, I'm sure we can talk again about this sometime in the future. Sorry, my time is short. Take care. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Wilson. Pretty smart guy, huh? He is. So Got some good lawyers now. So let me ask you, this has gone back to our, I think, our initial conversation well over a year ago. Are you starting to see more people pay attention to this than up until this point since the suit's I'll tell been you, filed? When the, what has happened in the past couple of weeks was the U.S. Department of Labor released their rule and then all the news started reporting on it. And our membership in Fight for Freelancers jumped up at least 10% in a matter of, I think, less than a week. It happened that quickly. I think what we're witnessing is the same thing we saw in the States starting back in 2019. In 2019, 
it happened in California, and all the rest of us in the country looked at California and said, kind of sucks to be in California. <laughs> you know, right. that was it. Right. Then they came to New Jersey, which is where I live, and all of a sudden it was very real, and there was a very real chance that I was going to lose 100% of my income to this stupidity. So we mobilized and took action to stop that from happening. What happened when the U.S. Department of Labor released this rule, it suddenly became real for the entire country. And now even people who've kind of been paying attention on the sidelines or watching or trying to figure out maybe in the future this could affect them, all of a sudden it's going to affect them if this thing goes into effect on March 11th. Um, so people are, we're urging them to do whatever they can. I know you had Representative Kevin Kiley on also uh, to talk about mm -hmm. this. He's trying to use the Congressional Review Act to stop it. Uh, we strongly encourage everyone to call their representatives in the House of Representatives and ask them to sign on as a co-sponsor to that. Um, you know, just as our, just as the people who are trying to destroy our careers are coming at us from every angle possible, we want to come at them from every angle possible. Well, I, I asked uh, Representative Kylie purposely that should they just call the representatives in the House or should they also call their senators as well. And he said senators as well, because the Congressional Review Act, if it passes, the House has to go to the Senate. So That's there's right. got to be pressure placed on the Senate as well. That's right. It's going to, it's probably going to start in the House based on what uh, right. he's, he's having a press conference, I think, as we're taping this or like a half an hour ago or something. So um, I haven't had a chance to listen to exactly what he said yet, but that is, that is my understanding as well. Yeah. And again, I go back to like, Okay, so people are just now starting to wake up to it, and it's really educating people. It's like, how do we do that? Yeah, well, so we went through this in the States, too. Um, the reality of this is the first time you hear about it, if you're like me, if you're like anybody I know, your first response is, well, that can't be right. Those people must be crazy. That can't be true. The government can't do that. I've been an independent contractor as a software developer for 50 years, or I've been an independent contractor as a veterinary consultant for 35 years. They can't just, they just can't make that illegal. Yes, they can. They did in California and it was an, it has been an enormous mess. They tried in New Jersey. We stopped them. They tried in Congress. We stopped them. They're now trying through this regulatory workaround. And that is why we filed the lawsuit. It is our intent to stop them. I have a, uh, I use the restaurateur example or analogy, um, but I've also had this side conversation via text with an attorney friend of mine. And, you know, there's all these law firms, California exempted attorneys out, you know, under AB5. But there's all these law firms around the country, labor side and just general, who have either partly retired attorneys or people who have they brought in of counsel. And so I asked, is of counsel attorneys, are they 1099s? And he said, yeah, in most cases. So even attorneys who are exempted in California may not be exempted under the DOL test. Well, it just makes sense, right? Like, let, you know, we go see a movie, Aaron Brockovich or whatever, you know, go see one of these movies where the law firm is, is trying to home in on a specific, very complex issue. There's only X number of lawyers who specialize in that issue, right? right. So, of course, they're going to have to find those specialists and bring them in. Same thing is true for, uh, we hear this all the time, from the translators, interpreters. Vast majority of them are, are they want to stay independent contractors. In every research study I've seen, it's because you get somebody who specializes in something, like Spanish to English would be very common, 
uh, here in the United States, but something like translating Portuguese to English, not so common. The odds of finding a full-time job anywhere translating Portuguese to English, those odds are very small, right? But if you make yourself available as an independent contractor to every kind of company, courthouse, anybody who might need an occasional translator of Portuguese to English, well, now, now it makes sense and you can earn a good living doing that. So the notion of specialists is paramount. to The same thing's true of freelance writers. A lot of us specialize in things that nobody else knows how to write about. We've worked on it, whatever our topic of interest is, for 10, 20, 30 years. Um, Pointer put out a study not that long ago saying that I think it was close to half of science and environment writers in this country are freelancers. They're independent contractors. Right. Not just anybody can come in and write a educated, accurate article about some climate study that I certainly would need a minute to try to figure that out. Um, but there's there's writers who specialize in that kind of stuff. So all of this all of this is interrelated in the question that you asked uh, about the lawyers. It's it's not what you asked is true, but it's not just true of lawyers. It's true of over 600 professions that they've now identified out in California as being impacted. Well, you know, to that end, and I'm going to use this um, somewhat anecdotally over the weekend, and and we didn't do a deep dive on research, but I asked my assistant, Rosie, the researcher, I'll call her to go into some of the union's financial records. And the only ones that have been updated are from 2022, right? So the 2023s are still coming out and identified. I just asked her to go through five different unions, identify the either independent contractors, individuals who are on union payroll or consultants. And for example, SEIU had in 2022, just at the national level, not any of the locals, over 100 and I think it was 111 she found as, quote, consultants or individuals, like they're going to have to get hired. Or if you have union salts, again, this is kind of going back into the labor relations world, world, and they're being payrolled, and they're, of course, central to the union's mission of organizing workers. If they're hiring people as independent contractors as union salts, I would think they'd have to hire them as employees as well. And if they're working 60 hours a week to unionize ABC company, then they're probably going to be entitled to overtime. So I'll give you a really good one that just happened um, in de- late December, right after Christmas. So not even a month ago in the state of Arizona, the Arizona Democratic Party, the, mm. the, the party responsible for electing Democrats in Arizona, um, they, they hired a new party chair. They hired her as an independent contractor. The Arizona Republic reported she's getting $12,000 a month as an independent contractor to to run the Arizona. I mean, you can't, it, it's comical, right? You, you can't make that kind of thing up, but that's where we're at. Uh, it's, it's just delusional that this is in any way workable for our United States workforce. It just doesn't match what actually happens in reality. Well, and as you know, I, I think, you know, especially in New Jersey, that third parties can file suits on behalf of workers now. It'll be interesting when all of these, whether it's the chair of the Democratic Party who's an independent contractor, has a lawsuit filed on her behalf to make her an employee. Well, we'll have to call Wilson and ask him about that. (laughs) (laughs) So as I got Wilson to kind of talk about the process, this is going to be a long, drawn-out process, it sounds like. 
what he has said to me is what he said to you is some some of this just depends on the response. And so we'll see. Um, but I can tell you, I've been in this since 2019 here in the state of New Jersey. And anybody who has ever heard me on a podcast, seen me on TV, watched me on Twitter, anywhere else, my friends and I are not going anywhere. The, the only thing these freelance busting moves are doing is organizing opposition and we fully intend to keep doing everything in our power to lead that opposition. You know, as I mentioned this to the congressman the other day when I was talking to him. The um, It's interesting how this crosses party lines. One of the comments on the Facebook group that you run was from, I believe, a lifelong Democrat who is like, I am now a single issue voter. I'll tell yeah. you, I wrote a story. I'll tell you exactly how it happened. Back in March of 2021, the guy who founded and edits and runs the Daily Cost website, which is one of the most progressive mm. websites in the planet, reached out and asked me, could I please write something about what we're seeing in the States, especially what was happening after the PRO Act came out on top of what was going on in California and New Jersey. And I wrote this story. People can Google it if they want to. It ran in March of 2021. And I said, it was all it was all that it was it was women a lot of women who voted democrat their whole lives basically saying what the hell like <laughs> you're attacking me i put you in office what are you people doing to me and i wrote back then that until the democrats stop trying to eliminate our choice of how to earn a living this is this can be used against them in every election going forward. And that is exactly what we're starting to see happen now. This USDOL rule came out and not in right wing media in USA Today over the weekend. I read a story, President right. Biden's picture right on the front about how this is an attack on people who want to choose to be independent contractors. I don't know. We told them so. Maybe now they'll start to listen. It's, it's hard to comprehend. This is bad policy. It's bad politics. The only reason to keep doing this is union campaign contributions. What good are those campaign contributions if you lose everybody's vote? That doesn't make any sense to me. And a bunch of people are unemployed because of it. I mean, at the end of the day, do you really want 72 million Americans walking into a voting booth and saying, I guess it's their career or mine? Right. That doesn't seem like a very good political play to me. I'm not a political consultant, although apparently I could be for the Arizona Democratic Party. If I yeah, could. you could be. You know, the um, one of the interesting things about this is that this fight's been going on a long time. Um, I had Mike Ruby on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and then you know, and you've mentioned this a couple of times. It's gone down to the state level. New York just passed something, I believe, about basically the ABC test. And they're talking about like criminal penalties, like jailing, I'm assuming employers who misclassify their workers. Have, have you seen that? No. What I'm familiar with in New York is the Freelance Isn't Free Act. Is that maybe what you guys were talking yeah, about? Yeah, something in November, the governor signed into law. Governor Hochul, yeah. So yeah. the Freelance Isn't Free Act is being pushed by the same exact crowd of freelance busters who have pushed all this other garbage uh, in all these other places. What... What they're trying to do, it sounds like a really good thing. It's, it says, if you are a freelancer and somebody doesn't pay you, the Department of Labor in the state level can now come in or, or a city agency, whatever it is, 
government can now come in and on your behalf deal with that problem and issue fines and penalties to the company that failed to pay you. The problem that we have with these freelance isn't free bills and laws is the that the very people pushing them have said they hope it will lead to future laws like the ones that we're talking about here today that become an enormous problem for everyone. The way they try to achieve that little incremental step of freelance busting in these laws is they change things like right now, today, if I don't get paid by a client, I am a small business owner. I go to small claims court. I file a small claims. I've actually done that once, I don't know, 15 years ago or something. I had a deadbeat client. I went to small claims court in New York, won, got the money. That was it. It was resolved. Now they're trying to say that I have to function like any traditional employee and go through the Department of Labor. They mm. don't call us things like small business owners in these in these laws. They call us, they use language like wages, which is an employee word. They're trying to shift the legal language bit by bit by bit to push us in a direction that they will have an argument to make about something like a full-on ABC test. And that that is a problem. That's why we are against those freelances and free laws. We think the way they are worded by the admission of the people writing them is is an attempt to move in the direction we are seeing happen nationally right now. So am I mistaken that there's some criminal enforcement on that in New York? My understanding is big fines and penalties. From what I saw, um, there's only been a couple articles about it that were filed. Uh, Again, what I keep coming back to is the same people pushing all the freelance busting laws and regulations we've had to beat back are the same people pushing this. And they themselves have uh, said, I think one of them was even on public radio in New York when I heard him say it, it is their it is their hope that this will allow them to proceed farther in states like New York that so far have not copied California completely. Okay. Well, my, my point to asking that is it kind of goes back to the chilling effect where if I'm an employer... Okay, so let's just limit it to fines. I'm probably not going to use freelancers, right? That, according to that is what we have seen anecdotally all these years, and it is what that new study this week from the Mercatus Center shows in their actual breakdown of the numbers that the there is no evidence to show what our opponents say is true. Our opponents keep saying if we tighten up, if we tighten up these rules about who can be a legitimate independent contractor, the result will be companies creating all these brand new jobs and everybody will be a unionizable employee. And then we all ride off on unicorns over a rainbow into the sunset. And it's wonderful. What actually happens in the vast majority of cases, and this is again, what they documented in the Mercatus research this week, the actual result is people losing income and careers. And I know you've had Karen Anderson from Freelancers Against AB5 on the program. They have documented so many cases in California of that actually happening. It's ridiculous. Uh, and then this economic research this week by the Mercatus Center, that's like the geek version with the fancy economist numbers and things that say, yeah, the freelancers have been right all along. This is bad. Right. Yeah, it's, well. And, and I say I'm... geek with love. I think they're super nerds. I love them over there. I think <laughs> no, they're I... terrific. Leah, Leah has been on in the past, and she's coming on later this week as well. She's so, fantastic, and yeah. I urge everybody to listen. She sat two, I think, two seats down from me when I testified on this before Congress right. last year. I thought she was tremendous. Very impressive. Yeah. I need to uh, reach out to Karen as well because she's been on. 
And maybe we can get some anecdotal stories out there. She's got them. She's got, I don't even know how many at this point. You know, you mentioned the PRO Act, and I, I've mentioned this before. Um, and for the listeners that don't know what the PRO Act is, that's that Protecting the Right to Organize Act that's been, it's passed the House of Representatives twice, it's failed in the Senate, but it's a big behemoth of pro-union legislation that eliminates right-to-work states, it forces companies to uh, go into contracts with unions based on government-appointed arbitrators, and a whole bunch of other stuff. But in the PRO Act is the ABC test that we're talking about. And, right. of course, Biden has has had it on his uh, campaign website since, I think, 2020 or 2019. And so who alerted me to this was our friend Gabriella Hoffman, who did an article, I think, in Town Hall or something about the PRO Act and eliminating independent contractors. And so I messaged her. I was like, you know, it's a, a bigger thing than just this. And she's like, this impacts 60 to 70 million people. I'm like, oh, <laughs> so that's what got me into this. So, yeah. Joe Biden, the first time he ran for president, it was we have the screenshots. They they took it down right after our congressional hearing, which I thought was interesting, oh, interesting. timing. But uh, and we have the screenshot saved just in case that happened. But he promised on his first first go around campaign website that he would he thought California had led the way on this independent contractor issue. And it was his intent to work with Congress to make this same freelance busting language the basis for all labor, employment and tax law nationwide. The PRO Act was specific to labor law. That was step one in the plan. Right. And to kind of alleged, you know, supposed to be until we stopped them. For the listeners who are also just catching up to this, Julie Sue, at the time AB5 went into effect, was the labor commissioner out in California. She is now the acting secretary of labor who is pushing this through. No doubt there that they have stacked the entire department labor with leadership uh, people who, again, like I said earlier today, people are policy. Uh, Another member of leadership is a woman who was the point person on this for Senator Patty Murray, who was the primary sponsor of the PRO Act in the Senate. Now she's in leadership at the U.S. Labor Department. they're, They're just trying to move the show and achieve the same goal through a different means. That's their intent. They've and been clear it, about this. They've been absolutely clear. I mean, if you look, causes if you joblessness. Look, <laughs> it's just stupid. I mean, if you look through the USDOL's own 339-page roll, which that is longer than the first Harry Potter book, Peter, and I do not recommend reading it unless you're trying <laughs> to cure your insomnia because it's a killer. But that's why themselves. I have you on the podcast, by the way, so I don't have to read <laughs> all that I did read stuff. all 339 <laughs> I know <pages>. you did. <laughs> I know that Wilson did as well. Uh, he actually printed them out and highlighted them. I didn't, I didn't go that far, but um, that's why he gets the big bucks, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, if you actually look, they, they state explicitly that they look through all the public comments. The people who are for this are the unions and the labor advocates, and the ones who are against it are business owners and independent contractors. They state it. Outright, right. this is the public response we received. It's it's not, it's not in our pretty little heads, Peter. It's reality, and they've just decided they don't care. So, on that note, what recommendations do you have for people who are just catching up to this? Well, uh, from where we sit, we have our 
Facebook group, Fight for Freelancers USA. You're welcome to come and join us. Uh, you, we're all hanging out on Twitter. I am the Kim Cavan on Twitter. Uh, you're welcome to follow along. We try to post stuff as it comes to our attention. We'll obviously be posting updates on the case as those things happen. Um, I also strongly recommend right now the big thing people can try to do is help uh, Representative Kiley his effort to lead on the Congressional Review Act to stop this thing. He's he's uh, working with a senator from Louisiana on that in the other chamber. Um, so reach out to your lawmakers and just call them. Pick up the phone and call them and tell them you do not want the USDOL rule to go into effect. You want them to co-sponsor the Congressional Review Act in order to stop it. Terrific. Well, Kim Cavan, thank you so much for coming back on Labor Relations Radio. I love having you on because you are so much more knowledgeable than I ever could be on this subject. I doubt that that is true. I just now have a cool lawyer helping me out. So it's, it's going <laughs> to hopefully go well, and we'll see what happens next. Thank you. Thank you. So that was Kim Cavan and Wilson Freeman. Kim, of course, is a returning guest to Labor Relations Radio and is one of the plaintiffs in the lawsuit against the Department of Labor's War on Independent Contractors, its six-part rule, so to speak, and her attorney, Wilson Freeman, from the Pacific Legal Foundation. As always, I love having Kim on because she knows this topic back and forth. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. If you want to reach out, you can reach out on X, the app formerly known as Twitter, at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Give us a call at 1-888-668-6466 or leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Take me to that place Wash my away You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoy Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.